Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In part two of Mike and Andrew's discussion with Kurt Campbell, the group turns to the domestic implications of the Trump administration's strategy in Asia. How does the Trump administration's aggressive trade policy affect American farmers? How do Trump administration trade policies fit into the larger discourses on free trade? Mike and Kurt also discuss the Trump administration's departure from long-held norms in Asia grand strategy. Is the focus on browbeating both allies and adversaries sustainable? They wrap up the discussion with a brief examination of President Trump's summit diplomacy with North Korea. The Democratic candidates, you know, were asked, what country would you go to first to repair the damage, you know, that we've seen in relationships? And I don't recall anyone saying any Asian ally. (laughs) Some candidates said China, a lot said NATO. Buttigieg, you know, said, depends on who Trump is pissed off the most right before that, which is, was a clever answer. Uh, What would your answer be? I mean, what would you do if we have a Democratic administration and you could have some influence on this to get us back in the game quickly to signal that right away? Uh... I would probably uh, suggest going to something very different. I'd probably mm-hmm. go to India, mm-hmm. uh, maybe Japan. Uh, I would make a swing through Asia. And I think that would be the signal I would send. You know, Secretary Clinton went to both Asia and Europe simultaneously. But I think a clear message that the, that the real strategic focus is in Asia is important. I, I do want to say, though, Mike, I think at the core – of our strategy is uh, an issue that I don't know how to get around. So, you know, um, Andrew, Mike and I have been like brothers. We have fought on issues tooth and nail for decades now, when in fact our politics are about identical. The one issue that probably both of us have a lot of concern about is trade. Both the we're going to see a uh, campaign this time in which both the the you know the president and like the likely democratic contender will be somewhat hostile to trade, and what Asians are looking for more than anything else is a comprehensive approach on trade that is about putting forward a vision of our optimistic engagement in the region. And one that they can rely on, one that's consistent. The fact that we do not have a trade strategy, it's hard to have an overall strategic approach without a trade strategy. It really is. Yeah, I think that's clear to the strategists. It's clear to soybean farmers in Ohio. So are you saying that President Trump doesn't have a trade strategy or that his trade strategy is not working? Look, his trade strategy is based on an understanding of economics that if an undergraduate submitted the idea of addressing bilateral trade balances as a means to fix your position uh, in Asia, you would be flunked out of the class. And all the economists and others around the president know it but can't confront him on it. And so the fact that he's trying to handle these issues through this narrow calculus of sort of the bilateral trade balance is problematic. I also think that trying to essentially negotiate 
one-off bilateral trade agreements is not going to be successful in a dynamic, evolving Asia. And we are ceding that territory fundamentally to China with a very different vision more generally. Part of our leverage in these negotiations to begin with is that we bring a multilateral rulemaking framework. That's why Japan agreed to open ag. That's why Vietnam agreed in TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, to limit state-owned enterprises. I mean, they agreed to do that because they wanted the influence that comes from an American-led multilateral agreement that shapes rules in ways that force China to play fair. And when you go into these bilateral agreements, that is one of the most important pieces of leverage you give up, which is why it's, uh, I think I'm with Kurt on this one, it's hard to see actually how the administration succeeds on bilateral trade agreements, given how they have basically emptied their own quiver of the best arrows they had. And not only that, but no, no country is going to step forward in this circumstance to say, count me and I want to be in a bilateral trade. I mean, the two or three that have been mentioned. One is the United States and Japan. There's no better person to explain why that is fraught with risk than Mike Green. The other that has been talked about a little bit is Vietnam. The Vietnamese are incredibly wary of getting into a negotiation with President Trump when Every week, he's tweeting out the most egregious offender of trade rules is Vietnam. And so it's just it's the manner in which we've gone about it. It's it's a sense of, you know, not really understanding how Asian functions, putting leaders in a situation where they can lose face on a moment's notice. Incredibly difficult. And I think what I'm hearing both of you saying is that overall, our trade policy is going to be based on some political calculus back here for 2020. And that political calculus is going to be something very simplistic because we have an electorate that doesn't fundamentally understand trade and a president that's going to be playing to a, a base of 40% that is, you know, you're either with us or against us, yeah. you know, China, China bad, US good, um, Democrats are all over the place when it comes to trade. Yeah. There's no coherent message. So w- what has to happen here is if you're a Democrat and or if you're an advisor to the president. I mean, Bob Lighthizer is, is no slouch. I mean, this is this is a serious person. Um, he's got to try to advise the president. What, what do you say to him? Look, you know, Lighthizer's general approach, I think he's a capable person. Yeah. But remember, his formative period in power was before the WTO, was before multilateral trade. Right. So I think his general approach I would argue, is not as effective in the current set of circumstances. And I'm not as interested in steel and aluminum as I am in setting the framework for IT and areas in which the United States and its firms can be dominant more generally. Because we're, we're in the ideas business. Yeah. We're not in the steel yes, business. Yes, but I think the larger problem is, is something – I don't think it's just I'm in – you know, strategy meetings, domestic strategy meetings, where I hear the same thing where people will say, look, we've got to explain trade more effectively to the American public and that the American people don't understand trade. Unfortunately, generally speaking, the American public has made up their mind on trade. Many of the groups that we seek to appeal to believe that trade more than just, you know, economic trends and development and technology have changed the you know fabric of their lives in negative ways and you know if you look at countries that have been more effective with respect to trading they've put huge amounts of money into retraining and to issues that most in the United States particularly on the right would say that you know this is the state functioning in areas that 
um, it should not. And so I, I think it's going to be hard to rebuild the consensus on trade. And I think if you look at beyond race, the issue that the president has been able to rally people behind quite effectively is this sense that we're being taken advantage of. I'm a little less pessimistic, but maybe that's because I was brought up Unitarian and, you know, we always believe things are going to turn out okay in the end. But look, the polls, Chicago Council of Global Affairs and other polls show uh, higher broad public support for global trade than we've seen in a decade or more. And right now, um, the president's tariff policy is really um, putting farmers in important states like Ohio and Michigan and Pennsylvania right on the edge. And I personally thought there was no way he was going to increase tariffs on China uh, at the G20 when he met Xi Jinping, because he can't, because he can't afford to lose those votes. They're with him now, but he, he can't go any further. They're with him, but they've had drought. They've had several years of, of flat you right. know, growth. And, and they're getting and, and, clobbered and it, now by retaliatory tariffs against the U.S. for what, especially China, what Trump put right. on, there were, and lack of access to the Japanese market because we pulled out a Trans-Pacific partnership. Correct. And if you ask any of them, none of them want a handout. So I think it is possible to run on trade uh, successfully in this country. Rob Portman did it in Ohio, ran as a free trader in Ohio and won as a senator. But the politics are very broken. Sherry Brown would be good at it in Ohio too, but he's not running for president. Yeah. Well, you could make the case for trade. You'd have to do it differently. I think Kurt's right about that. You can't do it the old way. Um, I think it's doable. Lighthizer's focus, I think, is pulling production uh, chains, supply chains out of China. And he's succeeding. You talk to multinational executives in Asia, and uh, they're pulling about a third of their supply chains out of China mm -hmm. for the U.S. market because they think the tariffs are not going away. And so, in a way, Bob Lighthizer succeeded in his immediate goal, which is getting supply chains out of China. But two-thirds of supply chains for Korean, Japanese, other multinationals are staying in China because they mm -hmm. need that market. So I think there's another chapter after Bob Lighthizer, and there is an opportunity to build a case uh, for trade, but, it, but the politics are broken because Democrats need votes that don't trust trade, and it won't uh, happen in this cycle necessarily, but I think there's, there's an opportunity for leadership yeah, but, on this one. Yeah, look, I'm not writing off trade I, I'm, I'm politics. Not, I'm not writing it off, it off either, but I, I would simply say that, yes, you can find examples, particularly in farming and ranching states, that are pro-trade. What, what that's really about are exporting uh, uh, American grains, ranch products to Asia, right? But if you look more carefully beneath that in states and areas in which have been deeply involved in manufacturing, um, harder to find those case studies of people saying, boy, trade is great. This is the right thing. Now, you could be more hopeful and look at areas in the West that that really have been about the surge in technology, cloud computing, certain things, and see support there for um, uh, you know integration trade more generally. But I think at the core, what we are facing is that if you look at sort of the industrialized states in the Midwest, in Ohio, in Michigan, uh, these states are deeply ambivalent to negative on trade. And that transcends politics. And what's fascinating, I agree with Mike around the Chicago, Chicago Council, Council yeah. polling, but I, I find that there are things that are more interesting. What, what's happened is there's been a slight increase in support among Democrats for trade, slight, but it's still not a majority. Mostly because they're younger, right? Younger. More but, global. But 
a, a complete collapse in support in the Republican Party, which we have always counted on to be the bulwark of support for trade. And that has been led dramatically by President Trump. And so, you know, the, when, when Mike talks about a new leader, I worry sometimes. Let, let's imagine, uh, you know, that there is an election in terms there's a new leader. I think we're going to be surprised that elements of Trumpism are going to be defining. I think he's going to be one of the most influential leaders in our history in ways that we can't really anticipate until after. Well, and even, even if he loses, uh, it doesn't feel like he's going away. I mean, he could easily have a, a media company and he still has his Twitter feed and you know he's, he's not going to be a shrinking violet himself. Yeah, I agree with that. But I, but I also think he has, uh, and again, this is an issue that Mike and I sometimes struggle over. I think he has fundamentally reshaped the Republican Party and there is no going back. So the Republican Party of the past that was about purpose, human rights, you know, morality, pro-trade, pro-alliance, the party strong that I defense. admired, strong defense. The only element of that that is relevant is strong defense, but it is not, it is a threatening defensive strategy. It's almost like, don't screw with us or we'll just hammer you. It's not right. a purposeful, you know, our armed forces are there as partners to support peace and stability, but more like we're going to whack you if you don't do what we want. Are we leading anywhere in the world right now? And do you see, you know, along the same lines of what you're talking about, whether Trump's in or out, do you see us leading going forward? You know, it's difficult. It's very important, Andrew, not to look at foreign policy as a popularity contest. Uh, at the outset, President uh, Obama was incredibly popular, and he has broad support in a number of key countries even now. But there were some concerns about American retrenchment more generally. You know, if you look at most of the public opinion polling in many of the countries that matter to me in uh, NATO, in Asia, there are alarming trends. Um, but at the same time, um, it is also the case, and this is undeniable in certain trade situations and other places, President Trump has managed to get countries to put better offers on the table by being difficult and demanding, right? And so I think the undeniable message and lesson of that is to be tougher. And I think you're going to find American leaders going forward tougher generally on Asian uh, uh, commercial partners, uh, allies and potential, you know, competitors as well across the board. I think it's we're going to see that it's going to be coarser, more difficult and challenging. There's tough and then there's smart tough. Yeah. Um, and if we're smart tough, it's not going to be a problem. I mean, the one thing we do have going for us in spite ourselves in Asia right now is there is a definite hunger for American leadership, not American bossiness, um, but American presence, uh, American commitment. Um, and uh, so far, um, I don't see Japan or Australia or Korea giving up on us. And for the smaller ASEAN states, they're more, they're hedging more um, but it seems to me like we have some time to uh, reestablish that confidence and that commitment. What's your sense of that? How much I, time do you think I, we have? I hope Mike's right. And, and, and again, I don't want to be pessimistic. I'm, I'm a hopeful person. I hope Mike's right. My worry is that I, let's imagine a situation that there's a new leader in 
2020, that there's a new American leader. I think there will be a sense among the advisors to that president that he or she will be greeted with a degree of gratitude and thankfulness globally. And that is not going to happen. In fact, the first year or two is going to be a lot of lecturing and scolding and you guys were idiots and it was hard to work with you and we've made our own arrangements. And so it's going to require a a, a kind of thick-skinned, careful, don't take it personally approach on the part of American leadership that I don't think, I think is in Can relative. our allies really afford to talk to us that way though? Oh yes, I think they can. I think they can if they felt that we were reasonable, like, you know, like we used to be. Uh-huh. Like, like you, you can't yeah. talk to Trump like that because he could at, at a They'll moment's notice, well, he'd whack you or just withdraw the British ambassador. Don't talk to the British ambassador. You know, just he, he, yeah. he, he will do things that are so unusual. Yeah. And it's been our predictability that has been, you know, kind of reassuring generally. If we return to that, I think many countries will give us a piece of their mind. I, I mean, that's just a thing. No, I think, look, one thing Kurt and I very much agree on and in transitions over the last 15 years have tried to do something about is the fallacy that the new guy or new woman, the new president is going to instantly be successful because the other one, the previous one was unpopular. I think I think every every president that we have worked for to some extent has made that mistake of believing their own campaign rhetoric and um, coming in thinking, well, I'm I'm new. And so, mm-hmm. you know, everyone loves the new. Yeah, but yeah. you still got to answer for but the old. But you still got to answer for the old. Well, it's even more than that. You've got to continue what the old previous leader did that was successful. So I remember Kurt got me in to a dinner. Especially in your field, because well, your field in is Asia. a real Continuity matters. So Kurt yeah. got me into a, I assume it was you, Kurt, to a dinner with Secretary Clinton before her first trip to Asia in March 2009. And I'd worked as McCain's Asia advisor, so I wasn't sure why I was there. I assumed it was Kurt. I hoped it was Kurt because if yeah. it wasn't Kurt, I was assuming I was there to be, you know, eaten. Uh, we will, you know, <laughs> eat the Republican. I remember guy. this. You told me about this. You were nervous. Well, Secretary Clinton said uh, she disagreed on, with President Bush on the Middle East, but on Asia, she thinks the most important parts he got right, and that's yeah. why I was there. And yeah. that was really important. And yeah. um, some of the worst mistakes in the Bush administration, and I would argue in the Obama administration, were when people threw out what the previous guys did, anything but Clinton, anything but Bush. Mm -hmm. Um, It would be a mistake, I think, for the next president, if it's a Democrat, to just assume everything Trump did was wrong. My guess is that if you have a a new president, a lot of our allies are going to be really relieved. But I'll tell you what the Japanese and Australians and Koreans or Indians will worry about. They'll worry about the new president not being tough enough on China, not being supportive enough of defense. Um, They're going to want more trade. They're going to want more multilateralism. They're going to want better diplomacy. But the next president is going to, if it's a Democrat, is going to have to be careful not just to assume we're going from black and white to color like the Wizard of Oz. And and Andrew, I I also want to say that there are are elements of the Trump approach that are important and sure. should be taken into account. And I will tell you, I, on many of occasions, I've watched his deeply personal engagement with um, Prime Minister Abe, and I've been admiring of that and wishing we had more of that on our side. We were always trying to orchestrate those kinds of moments, but a lot of our leaders have other things and they're busy and you know it's hard to find that chemistry. Mike had it when he worked. He, he had it with... Koizumi and Bush and then others, we, we never really, you know, I think President Obama had it a little bit with President Lee in, in South Korea, a little bit, a couple other countries in Southeast Asia, but not what the president, like, so 
the president has showered attention and affection in his own Trumpian way on Abe. That's a big deal. That changes what the expectations are. It's no more like it's we're not going to be able to say, look, here's a one hour lunch, one hour bilateral, call it a day. That's not the way it's going to be. And and so that for me has raised our the bar and I'm I'm grateful for yeah, it. And he got a golden golf club in return, yeah, right. you know. So <laughs> I mean, it, you know, but it worked I, out. I will say this this whole issue of so I wrote a book with our Jim uh, our mutual friend uh, Jim Steinberg called Difficult Transitions, which are transitions like they're incredibly difficult periods and if you look at a succession of them there's almost always things that you can predict much of it has to do with seeking to upend what the previous administration has done a or trying to implement uh, a uh, a good piece of campaign rhetoric like close Guantanamo or demonize you know butchers of Beijing without recognizing you know, there's a difference between governing and campaigning. Kurt, I got to ask you before we go, because we haven't touched on this yet, but North Korea. Mm -hmm. President just set foot in North Korea. Um, what do you both think of how this president has handled North Korea and his relationship with the North Korean leader? Well, I, on the one hand, I'm grateful that we're not, you know, worried about missiles and nuclear right. tests. And I'm in some ways, quite impressed that the president has tried to engage directly uh, uh, the leadership. And he is able to operate without fear of being attacked from the right, which has always been the concern in both Democratic and Republican administrations. So for us, if we were attacked by the right or in the in the Bush administration being attacked by the right, but he has basically co-opted those people. And so, you know, nothing more visual than sending Mr. Bolton to, to Mongolia more generally. So I'm not as alarmed by this. I don't really like the language about love and stuff, but I don't think it's completely crazy. Um, I, I think it is unlikely to yield the results that he talks about. Um, I don't think they're going to get out, give up nuclear weapons. I think they've made that strategic calculation. But if we can hold North Korea from doing a lot of crazy stuff, then it's not a terrible it's not a terrible gambit. I mean, my 13 year old the other day said to Germany's former defense minister. We were in Germany. We were with my friend um, Carl Theodor Zugutenberg. He said, "North Korea is never going to give up their nuclear weapons. It's their get out of jail free card." <laughs> you know, I mean, they're they're just not so. We have to operate under that principle. Well, I'm, I'll end the discussion as the cynic and the skeptic, but I think North Korea's bottom line is the bottom line they've had yeah. for 25 years. They are willing to give us access to their Yongbyon complex, which is roughly half of what they have. They're willing to go through a step-by-step -step salami slicing process of inspections and freezing and slowly dismantling and theoretically getting rid of that half of their program in exchange for... Uh, substantially all sanctions lifting and acknowledgement that they are a nuclear weapon state and they get to keep the other half of their nuclear weapons program, which which is, I believe, what the North Koreans have always been willing to do. I don't think Donald Trump has changed that at all. Yeah. He went from fire and fury to Singapore to walking out of Hanoi. There's a lot of drama. It's not the art of the deal. It's the performance art of the deal. Bottom line is we face that choice. Do it. 
Donald Trump's diplomacy had very little to do with it, uh, maybe surfacing it, but do we acknowledge them as a nuclear weapon state, lift sanctions for half their stuff, knowing the other half will be there? I would oppose it, but that's a fair debate. I don't think that this is really a question of summitry and crossing the DMZ. That's theater. Yeah, I agree. But Andrew, I will say this, though. One hears persistent rumors and feedback that on occasion the president will ask, what's wrong with just letting them have some acknowledging that he seems like a perfectly reasonable guy. We can live with these guys, you know, so what, you know, we can, we can manage the, the, the results. I think there have been enough people that have pushed back on this now that I don't think the president has as yet been prepared to move in that direction. But my instinct tells me that he would take that deal. And, and if he is reelected, then he will have the opportunity to completely reshape the Republican Party. The only thing that will then matter, the, the way you're tested, is not what your views are on trade, what your views are on human rights. Are you able to hew immediately, even if it means changing course 180 degrees, with the line that the president sets? And it's worrisome in a Asia chessboard strategic context, because I don't think the president is thinking about the other chessboard that we're talking about, the larger yeah. Asia chessboard. And the U.S. strategy we know today, our alliances um, in particular, our forward military presence, that was all defined and put in place by what happened in the Korean Peninsula in 1950. And what happens next on the Korean Peninsula is going to be no less consequential for our alliances, our strategic relationship with China. And I don't think the president's thinking about that larger chessboard at all. I agree with that. Um, and whatever you decide about whether we can live with nukes or not live with nukes, that piece we've got to get right. And uh, I'm yeah. not sure how much they're thinking about and, it. And Andrew, I would say, just as we're not thinking about it as much, it's all that China thinks yes. about. Well, as always, you two are incredibly fascinating, and I'm incredibly lucky that I've been around you all for you know the last 15 years, and incredibly lucky that when I came in to CSIS as a young man, Kirk Campbell listened to me as a young guy and empowered me, and shortly after, Mike Green came in and- As a young man, and you empowered me. <laughs> yeah, well, same thing. Yeah, thanks to both of you. Thank uh, you. Thank this you. is great. Thanks, great Thank podcast. you very much. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia Program page.